Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. I was just so enthralled by the idea of traveling and working. And there is a bit of a service drive for me, you know, that I wanted to like do something meaningful. I just didn't want to work for Anderson Consulting and make a lot of money for the man. Like, I just didn't want that. You know, it doesn't matter, like, if it's a wedding or a birthday, if a disaster happens, you're on. It's not my job to save the world. The world is as it is. And it's a very white privilege attitude to think like we're going in and saving these people. I mean, part of the reason they're in the situation they're in is because of foreign powers. This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA certified 8A hub zone, woman owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. Good morning, my dear friend, Christy. It's 5.45 a.m. my time. What time is it for you? Well, Shana, it is 3.37 p.m. here in Kathmandu, Nepal. I still can't believe that you are in Nepal. I think I've, I've had the luxury of knowing you for a long time, six years, seven years before you went off to Nepal. Oh, at least. Yeah. Do you remember how we met? Running. Yeah. It was a big personal challenge for both of us. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we were like, what are we doing? We can't do a half marathon. <laughs> I was by far the worst runner and remain the worst runner, though I like running. I think that's what's so great about us doing it then and continuing to do it is that like we're kind of high achieving women and it is really hard for us. And yet we still do it. It didn't feel hard for you. I remembered you chitty chatted and talked like the entire run and I like (laughs) could barely even do anything. Yeah, but I could talk through could talk through anything. That's just who I am. That doesn't mean it wasn't hard for me to run. (laughs) My, the training coach, I don't know if you remember, she used to tell me like, Christy, you'd be a much stronger runner. You'd get much better time if you would just talk less and breathe more. And I was like, well, I'm not going for time. So I guess I'll just stick with my chit chat. How long have you been living in Kathmandu, Nepal? We've been here about two and a half years. So we got here about four or five months before sort of COVID started and all the lockdowns and all that. And why did you up and move to Kathmandu? My career is in international humanitarian aid and development. And I have been living abroad and working in this industry since I was, actually, I started as an intern and undergraduate at the University of Richmond. And so when I met you, we were doing a certain amount of time kind of at headquarters and living in the States. But that period is actually the longest and one of the only times of my husband and my adult career that we've actually been U.S. based. And what started out as we thought was just going to be two years, three years, ended up eight years, eight, nine years. And so for us, it's more of the question, like, how did we end up in the U.S.? Like, because we've lived in so many countries around the world. 
And the point at which we decided to move here, I think we were both ready for sort of a personal change, a career change. And, you know, Griffin, my son was nine at the time. And we sort of felt like if we don't make the move now, we will get into that very precarious middle school years where it's very hard to uproot a child. And we wanted him to also experience living abroad for for part of his life. So I think for professionally, I was ready for a big change. Personally, like we were both ready to sort of find new adventure. And, you know, as a parent, we, we kind of wanted this for our kid too. What was it about Baltimore that kept you anchored there for so long? Oh, I mean, community for one, for sure. I mean, we lived in South Baltimore neighborhood and we made just an amazing group of friends that were such a huge support network to us and and Griffin's kind of friend group. We also, for the first time, really had roots in a community. I was involved, you know, you and I have served together on the Downtown Baltimore Family Alliance. So we got involved in a lot now, of... Now the Baltimore Family Baltimore Alliance. Family Alliance, right. It's not downtown. Were you one of the founding members? Mm-mm. No, but it was started in your neighborhood. It started in Canton, Bell's Point, actually. Just No the, way, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There is a really nice origin story that's been sort of documented. But at the time when I joined the board... The South Baltimore, Federal Hill, Riverside, Locust Point neighborhood, I think, had the most representation. But the origin is actually Cantonfell's Point. What's unique, I thought, about having a child in the city at that time was there are so many people out and about and there was so much to do for your children because you're right next to the museums, yeah. you're right next to the water, you're right next to all the parks. And we were always out and about. And I don't know if that was a blessing because our houses were small. You know, like we had these houses that we needed to get out to give the space to run and play versus I'm still jealous of suburban basements where like the kid can just, you know, essentially go biking and running full. Or like the cul-de-sac neighborhood. Yeah. For us, we were always just out and about and there's people everywhere. Yeah. My son's second word was go, go, go. Uh, He would stand at the front door and say, go, 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 because that's what he affiliated with playing and fun was like going out of the house and going to the playground, you know, and or going to someone's house or going to the park or going for a walk. We I think that's one of the things that I just loved about Baltimore, where we lived is sort of downtown living, walkability, you know, even my parents. So I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, way outside of Philadelphia. And my parents have never appreciated or understood the city. They never, we never went into Philadelphia. And they were only two hours away from us in Baltimore. And and they used to come out all the time. And my mom would be like, well, let's go to the museum. Like, what festival is happening? Let's do this. Like, especially my mom, who's just a real lust for life kind of person, started getting excited about all the things there was to do. She would come down on school holidays and take Griffin to this museum or that place or that, you know, the science center. And it was so fun to watch them sort of discover city life alongside of our life. It was, it's pretty cool. It's almost overwhelming because there's so many activities and festivals, especially once spring hits, but every single weekend, there's multiple things you can do. This Baltimore Family Alliance came formed together. Then you roped me in right before you left. You were like, Shana, you need to be on a board. Well, we needed big ideas and big thinkers like you. You know, I think we were right at a point where we were looking that we needed to scale outside of just downtown parents. I mean, you know, there's lots of 
other parts of the city of Baltimore that we wanted to pull in to appreciate this sort of lifestyle. So we were looking for big thinkers like you. It was quite the transformation after you left. The organization was like, what are we doing? Do we want to stay this really South Baltimore heavy group or do we want to expand and represent the whole city? And we had this crisis and now we're thriving as the Baltimore Family Alliance representing the whole city and advocating for all families in the city. But I, like you, grew up in the Pittsburgh suburbs and until I was 31, I never lived in a city. And it was so shocking the first time I ever lived in a city. And I never imagined having a child and raising a child in the city. And now I have two and I'm probably in the city for life, which is something I could have never imagined. Did you live in the same house your entire childhood? Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority, with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com Or drop us a line at hello at Nyla.io. No, actually, I was born in Florida. My uh, grandparents lived in Florida and my dad was there working. You know, he had met and fallen in love with my mom. And eventually when they got married, she moved down there. My dad was one of the first IT specialists at the Breakers Hotel, which is a very famous hotel in Palm Beach. Yeah, we lived in West Palm Beach. I'm not from any sort of privilege or money, but my dad was early on in the IT sector. And so he ran the computer systems at the Breakers Hotel. My parents are both from, or were living in upstate New York in Rochester. So when I was a couple years old, They moved back to Rochester, New York. My dad is originally from New Hampshire, but that's where he sort of went to high school. And that's where my mom is from. So until I was about 12, I went to school and lived in the same house in Rochester. And then my dad got a promotion to open up sort of a new office in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And we moved there and my mom had, it was such a difficult move. My mom had never lived anywhere other than Rochester, except for a little bit of time in Florida And it was a very sort of difficult time as a 12-year-old girl, right? As you transition from elementary to middle school or junior high. And I had a really horrible first year, really, really horrible. And then, you know, I don't know, it just bounced back. A year later, was running for student council and playing sports and doing everything. And so Lansdale, Pennsylvania is where I grew up from age 12 until I went to college. What is it about going to college that you decide you want to work in international aid. How does that even come about? You have a dad who's in IT. What's your mom doing? My mom's a nurse. Let's go back. Were you student council president as well? Yeah, I was. (laughs) Junior high and high school. Yeah. 
I was a freshman class president. I didn't know we had that in common, but I was not student council president. Yeah, because class president's not the same. Yeah. And (laughs) it's actually like, I'm actually so glad I went big for student government because it's the class president that has to organize all the reunions. (laughs) And I'm just totally off the hook for all of that. That's true. Yes, thank you, Rena Desai and the um, committee. (laughs) I I always appreciate that, North Penn High, but I didn't have to do that. (laughs) How many years were you council president? Just one each, the last year of junior high and then the last year of high school. What was your campaign slogan? Oh, I don't remember for high school, but I do remember for junior high because I played softball. And when I was up to bat, the girls on my team always used to sing, na 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 get man so I like, <laughs> so I actually wrote it out like on a board, like na 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 na, with the you know the letters would drop where the notes would drop, and then I had like Batman, you know, pictures of like Getman. Yeah, I mean, you well, can do a, a lot with the last name Getman. It's also what like boys tease you with quite often. Really, what were you teased with? Christy Ann Getaman. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had an immigration officer. I had a guy, I was coming in from a trip to South America and I was transiting in Austin or, or Houston or somewhere in Texas. And I was going through passport control and the guy, you know, looks at my passport and asks me like, where have you been? Why are we there? Hands me my passport and he says, welcome, you know, back to the United States, ma'am. And he says, I, I just have one more question for you. And I said, yeah. And he said, did you get one? And I was like... <laughs> Get one what? I, you know, I'm like 40 at this point. Get one what? And he's like, a man. And I was like, are you kidding me? Thank you very much, middle school. What else did you do in high school? So I was really involved in the state student leadership association, Pennsylvania Association of Student Councils. And so I went to a lot of conventions and conferences, and there's a whole like student board around student government capacity development. So I was really involved with that. They do sort of annual conferences. In the summers, they have leadership training camps. For like, if you get elected to student council, like usually at the end of the school year, and then they host these like one week, you stay in a college campus and you learn how to be a student council member, like how to be a student leader. And so when I was in middle school, when I got elected first, I got to go to one. And then after that, I was able to become a counselor. So for many years, I was a counselor, both at the junior high level and at the high school level, sort of training student council, like future leaders on how to be good student leaders. And it's everything from, you know, a basic agenda to good communication skills to inclusive participation, basic democratic principles to like the activities, how to run a pep rally or, you know, a fundraising campaign. So I did a lot of that. That was pretty cool. What was it that prompted you to run for student council in middle school? So you come out of nowhere Were you always like, I want to do student government? What in a little girl in middle school is like, student government sounds like it's for me. Is it you like bossing people around like me? I mean, my mom used to joke when I was in preschool that the teachers would go and have coffee and leave me to like run the preschool class. That's her (laughs) classic like embarrassed Christy story from the time she was young. I love it so much. <laughs> so, you know, clearly I think I had leadership skills that I wanted to express and use at some point, but I don't really remember the decision. 
I do remember the metaphor that I used in my campaign speech. And I found the index cards one time that I have them saved somewhere that I used my speech. And it was about a box of 64 Crayola crayons. And I talked about how the school was made up of all different kinds of colors of crayons. And part of student government had to find things for all the different people with different colors to be able to participate and find things for themselves to do in a big school like that. And I use this whole metaphor about a box of 64 crayons because I'm kind of a visual person. Like I have these sort of visual metaphors a lot. And I found the speech years ago and it's been a while, but and I remembered using that metaphor. And I think what happened was the metaphor stuck with people and two really popular people ran and canceled out each other's votes. And I, won. <laughs> I find in my work in engineering, you know, there's a lot of talk, but I'm building IT systems. So you often do not actually ever see or touch, you know, it's not like creating a building or going to a piece of land and and changing the land. So I draw pictures all the time. It's like you go to the whiteboard and you have to anchor people to a picture. It's really interesting from a communications perspective because one, IT people downplay communications and the value of communication skills. Yeah. But moving people to an image and saying, here's where we're going or here's what we're building or here's what we're building looks like it really helps people so much. So even though you can write it and explain it, the image does so much more and is stickier in people's minds. But that's a very mature analogy. That was your middle school metaphor? Was your school very diverse? Yeah, yeah. That part of Pennsylvania actually had a large number of South Asian and Southeast Asian immigrants. There was also an African-American population. Yeah. And it was a big school. So it drew from a lot of areas. Yeah, it was pretty diverse. But that really resonates with me about needing to visualize things. In my line of work in international humanitarian development, it's, it's a highly technical field. Like People don't realize how highly, highly technical it is and and the amount of research and evidence that goes into our decision-making. And sometimes the technical experts, they talk so esoterically that we can't communicate what we're trying to do either to our own staff who are implementing on the ground at the community level or to donors that we're trying to convince, you know, to give us money. And so, I mean, I literally have markers you know, right next to me here. And I'm not sort of an artist, but I'll just start sketching like a metaphor. And I use metaphors in describing things a lot because I think half the battle is trying to break things down so people can understand it and then act on it. And that is just so important. And now, I mean, today's day and age with social media, everything is broken down into little bite-sized things and people don't have the attention span to even read a full report, you really have to focus on communications. And somebody did an icebreaker this morning at a meeting I was on, and it was, what is your superpower that you wish you had? And my superpower that I wish I had was more graphic design skills, because I'm actually not an artist, and I actually don't know how to use all these great softwares really well. What I do is I sketch it out really badly, and then I go to the graphic designer, and I try to get that person to (laughs) make it look amazing. I am very similar where I don't have the artistic talent myself, but I have a very clear vision. And so props to Nyla's graphic artist, Jen Ross. She makes everything look amazing. It seems to me, and I don't know if you purposely do this, that athletics or 
you know, this physical side of you is what helps you build your community. Was that ever a conscious choice? Did you ever even realize that? Like you came into being after you started softball, right? Like you threw yourself into a running group in Baltimore, even though you're not a great runner. Have you ever thought about that aspect of it? Because you're so leadership focused, but then there's this pure play part. No, I've not ever thought about that, but it's really right. I mean, when I started graduate school, I joined an ultimate Frisbee team. And now in Nepal, I picked up tennis again. But I think what's been most exciting for me playing tennis is I've joined a Saturday morning doubles tennis league. And that's really so fun for me. And tell us how you met your husband. (laughs) My husband and I both have been active members of a running club called the Hash House Harriers, which is kind of a global phenomenon that started in the 40s, actually, you know, after World War II by a bunch of British you know, sailors that were stuck in Malaysia and bored and they they tried to emulate sort of a hare in the hound kind of model. And so the Hash House Harrier is like someone lays a trail, a running trail for the evening, but you don't know where it's going. And so you follow either chalk or paper. It's a bit of a follow the trail on the run. And then, you know, there's tricks to try and throw you off. And it's also like a heavy drinking club afterwards, everybody. It's like very, very social. And then there's kind of this piece to it where it's sort of like a rugby drinking circle where you sing sort of a bit off color songs. And as I would say in in British speak, take the piss out of each other, you know, kind of make fun of each other. (laughs) And it's very lighthearted. And for me, I absolutely love it. I've hashed all over the world in all different countries. And I've met so many interesting people. And yes, you get good exercise. And you also like learn to like be a lot lighter as a person, especially in today's day and age of politically correctness. You can sort of just make fun of people and just like let go and be a little bit off color. And, you know, sort of what happens at the hash stays at the hash. And, you know, it's all just in good fun. And I I think we kind of all need a little bit more of that. So we met in Washington, D.C. And I was in graduate school. I was just finishing graduate school. And my husband had just relocated from Los Angeles. So I had hashed in Senegal when I was doing graduate research. And that's where I discovered it. And then he had hashed in L.A. And that's where he discovered it. And then so I've met him at the hash in D.C. And we became friends with a group of friends kind of even outside of the running club. And, you know, I think for a long time, I thought we were just sort of having a good time. (laughs) Because I was, I still had my, you know, site set on an overseas posting to get my career started. And I was like, just like, I'm out of here. You know, I was not going to let any man, you know, tie me down. Uh, Also (laughs) advice I I still give to many young women professionals, (laughs) but he ended up uh, coming with me. (laughs) How old were you when you started your master's and what was it in? I was in my mid twenties. So I worked for a few years for an international NGO in Senegal. And then I came back and I got my, my master's is in anthropology. I went to GW and it's a four field anthropology department. So you have to take comprehensive exams, even at the master's level in all four fields. And for a long time, everyone that I knew thought that I was an archeologist because that's all they knew about anthropology. And they really, they thought I was going on digs What I loved about GW is that it's a four field. So you get exposure to all fields. It's a very traditional anthropology department, but the cultural anthropology department also has a very applied aspect. So crosses over with other departments like international education, public health. And, you know, I interned at the World Bank. And so it was really the anthropology of development. So looking at sort of a critical analysis of international development programs and what do they mean? Are they good? Are they bad? Like what works? What doesn't work? And stuff like that. 
I had no idea there were four fields of anthropology. What are they? Archaeology, obviously, digging stuff, cultural anthropology, which is the study of people, linguistic anthropology, which is like we have one in English, one word for white, but in uh, some cultures, like in the Arctic, the languages there have multiple words for the word white or multiple words for the word snow or you know it's it's sort of a cultural understanding of how people use words to describe their environment so linguistic anthropology and linguistic anthropology you can also learn evolution based on sort of branches of tree branches and all that stuff the third field is biological or also it's also called physical anthropology which is how they trace people's evolution and nutrition and stuff like that and then of course cultural anthropology Here's a fun fact. Different countries also count the number of continents and define continents differently. So that is also interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So we say we are taught in the U.S. there's seven continents and blah, blah, blah. But not every curriculum in every part of the world draws the boundary lines of the continents the same way. So, yeah, the first time I was I was in Africa and I was talking to little kids and they were learning about the continents. And I said, "Okay, so let me test you. How many continents are they? And they were like, there's five. And I was like, no, there's seven. And they were like, wait, no, there's five. And the teacher's like, no, she's right. There's five. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) And then we had this whole discussion about how they define the continent. So it was very interesting. Now, what made you decide after your field abroad that you should get a master's in anthropology? Is that common for humanitarian work that you have a master's in anthropology? Yeah, there are anthropologists definitely in this field. Yeah. I really liked the study of anthropology and I liked the lens that it brings to international development. And I was also very interested in methods, participatory methods. So it was sort of the right combination of things that, you know, I was really interested in. I felt at the time, like some of the more professional programs that are straight feeder programs were not academically grounded enough in in, in my like very poorly formed opinion at the time. But, you know, now that I've been in this field for so long, I've seen people come out of all different disciplines and there's pros and cons to everything. And there's a lot of great programs. And frankly, the way your career evolves over time may or may not have that much to do with, you know, your original degree. Can you explain what an NGO is? NGO stands for non-governmental organization. It is in a lot of ways, it's what the international community calls a charity or a nonprofit. It's essentially a nonprofit organization. It's called a non-governmental organization overseas because it needs to differentiate that we are not part of the U.S. So like I work for an NGO with global headquarters in the U.S., but we are not an arm of the U.S. government. And so it is indicative of the fact that we are a member of civil society. But it's a charity type of model. I mean, it's I wouldn't use the word charity because it's not handouts. It's a much more complicated, modern, professionalized organization. But an INGO is an international non-governmental organization. In most countries, we have INGOs, which are international organizations, and then there are also national NGOs. So in Nepal, you have Nepali run organizations that their headquarters are in Nepal and all of their staff are in Nepal, as opposed to, you know, the INGO that I work for, Mercy Corps, which is global. It's, you know, more than half a billion dollars annually. And we have 6,000 staff around the world in 40 some countries. So the mandate of, of INGOs, and, and there's a wide spectrum of them, 
is to provide some degree of international humanitarian aid or development support in, in other countries. There are also some who just do research or who just do advocacy or things like that. What was appealing to you about doing international work versus focusing on work in the United States? I had the opportunity to study abroad when I was in college, and that was you go? I went to Martinique. I went to the, a French-speaking Caribbean island. The reason I went abroad was not because I had sites on this career. Actually, I if I had stayed in my trajectory, I would have been like a management consultant working for like Accenture or something like that. I don't know. But I wanted to learn French. And I just kept taking classes and I just couldn't get the handle of the language. And it drove me crazy because I was a straight A student in every other regard. And I just took classes forever in high school and in college. And my advisor said, look, you really want to learn it. You got to go abroad in a full immersion program. And so I wanted to go to France or Belgium and get an immersion. And my parents wouldn't pay for it. It was too expensive. And they were like, we're not going to pay for you to go and roam around Paris They thought that was the junket, honestly. So they just kept saying no. And then I found a program that was like a straight tuition swap. The flights from, you know, the East Coast to Martinique and the cost of living was really low. And so the additional cost was very minimal. And so I finally like, and it was a fully immersion program. I mean, Martinique is part of France. And so they only speak. So I knew that I would sort of get a full immersion. And I finally convinced my parents to let me go. But it was actually a compromise because I really wanted to go to France, you know. And what happened was I was exposed to sort of the whole theory and history of colonialism, and the fight for French and British colonies to get out from under colonizers and what that meant for their own development. You know, when you either stay, you know, like in the case of Martinique, they remained as part of France, but as opposed to, you know, countries next door to them, like Haiti, that seceded, like they got their independence. And like, if you look at the difference between Martinique and Haiti, I mean, there's just no comparison in terms of the people's development and welfare And so that's how I sort of got exposed to a little bit of this line of work. And I wanted to learn more. And it just so happened when I went back to university after study abroad, I learned that there was an international NGO that had their headquarters in Richmond, and I was able to get an internship there. And that opened my eyes to this whole line of work. And I was just smitten because I had just never traveled. My parents weren't travelers. And I was just so enthralled by the idea of traveling and working. And there is a bit of a service drive for me, you know, that I wanted to like do something meaningful. I just didn't want to work for Anderson Consulting and make a lot of money for the man. Like, I just didn't want that. And the complexity of the issues, like the intellectual challenge really appealed to me, which it still does. So the combination of all of it just seemed like it was the right fit. And I thought, well, let's see if I can make a career out of it. And my parents were so like skeptical. They so didn't understand that this was a real job. (laughs) You're off at that private college and you're like, no, I'm going to go do international aid. Oh, my God. My dad was like, "Uh, no, you're going to work for Anderson Consulting. I went in as a psych major. I was going to be a psychologist. So my parents were like, you know, if you're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer or a psychologist, at least work for like a management consulting firm. Yeah, big money. 
they wanted job security for me is what they wanted yeah. more than money. They wanted job security and this, they didn't even understand this line of work. And so, yeah, I mean, I took some slack for a little while, but you know, now of course they love to brag about my, <laughs> my wonderful, exciting wanderlust type career that now actually pays the bills. I like to say that your job to me is save the world. And the last time I said that to you, you had issue with that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not my job to save the world. The world is as it is. And it's a very white privilege attitude to think like we're going in and saving these people. I mean, part of the reason they're in the situation they're in is because of foreign powers that have created structural problems of economics and social issues that have created the the state of poverty that many of these countries are in. So I don't like to use that kind of language. We are trying really hard, you know, as a foreigner in this line of work to put ourselves more in the backseat. I mean, yes, I'm the country director and I lead this program, but part of what I'm trying to do is slowly ease myself out of being in the forefront and having my staff more and more step into the leadership role. Because, you know, ultimately, like, Nepalis have to run Nepal and they have to support both the emergency response and the long-term development of this country. And so what we bring is technical expertise. We bring management support. You know, we bring money from donors. So you're a management consultant. <laughs> I mean, some of what I do is definitely management consulting. Yeah. Yeah. I could always have a backseat. Don't be mad at me for making that analogy. Uh, I mean, you know, someday when Griffin goes to college, if Anderson Consulting does want to call me and pay me big bucks, I suppose I could do that. Yeah. How many countries have you lived in? So Martinique. Yeah. And then the first country I lived in after graduate school was Senegal and then Mali, both in West Africa. And when I was there, I covered the region. So I worked in a lot of the surrounding countries of West Africa and then moved back to the States for a little bit. And then I moved to Sri Lanka after the tsunami, the South Asian tsunami in 2005. And so I, I worked on a tsunami response for several years and then to Thailand and closed out the tsunami response there with the Red Cross and then back to Baltimore and then now in Nepal. But I had worked in Nepal before. I had been back and forth supporting programs here, but just not lived here before. Yeah, I remember what happened was that the earthquake happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your husband was working logistics yeah. of getting supplies to Nepal. Yeah, my husband sort of transitioned into this line of work because of me. That was very lucky and, and doesn't often happen when someone in my line of work falls in love with someone who's not in this line of work. Usually one of them have to make a hard sacrifice. He's actually pivoted his career really, really well. It means he's not always employed and he's not always able to do his first choice things, but he has a quite versatile skill set. Yeah, it's very similar to military spouses where it's challenging, especially before everything was virtual. Now, I wonder if it's slightly better now if you're able to get a job that's virtual. But virtual in, in widely different time zones is, is hard as well. It's one thing to be virtual and you're one hour behind, yeah. like, oh, you're central and we're Eastern. How many hours ahead are you? I knew you were going to ask that, like 12 hours and 45 minutes or something right now. I'm not sure. I'd have to check, but it's, it's a lot. It's quite asynchronous. It's not easy. I mean, I think a lot of young professionals, I get a lot of requests for informational interviews and I, I think they have a real like dreamy idea of what this line of work is. And I think one of the messages that I always say to people is that this is a whole life career. 
this is not like, this is my job and this is my life. Like when you're in this line of work, it affects your entire life. Like you have to be all in because you have to, even if you're based in the U S first of all, you shouldn't always be based in the U S you you really, to be good at your job, need to spend some time living overseas, but you're traveling constantly. You are supporting countries in all different time zones. I mean, our teams in port, we have, we have offices in Portland and in Washington and Edinburgh and, and the Hague, and they, they flex their schedules and work late at night, early mornings, you know, for whatever time zone they need to support. Everything that happens in the world affects us. Like my team is supporting Ukraine and we're paying attention to this and we're trying to figure out how we can help. And my boss is there right now. And, you know, it doesn't matter like if it's a wedding or a birthday, if a disaster happens, you're on. Is it make it hard to have children? to have this job and to have children and to raise children? I mean, and plus you're a woman, so you had to go through being pregnant and giving birth. Do a lot of women in the field not have children? What's the impact on that? It's changing a lot for the better. I just heard a statistic recently that it was only 1971 when USAID, the foreign assistance arm of the U.S. government, stopped requiring women to quit when they got married or got pregnant because they they wouldn't support them in this line of work. And it was only 1971, which blew me away, right? It is very difficult, but I think there are some amazing models that it can really be done. I mean, I really was very lucky that I was able to take more time off than normal when my son was born. But at 14 months, I got on a plane for two weeks, went to Manila and then, you know, Indonesia. And I just walked out the door and my husband took care of it, you know, and you just make it work and you learn to kind of manage it. I did have to haul him on a couple trips and, you know, do the milk or or I left him and I was pumping all the time. And, you know, I was like, I remember I was on an airplane one time and I needed to pump so bad, but like there was turbulence and they wouldn't let us out. And I was like, what am I going to do? You know, and this nice lady next to me said, you look like you're agitated. And I explained to her the situation. She said, oh, my sister pumps. You know, I just do it right here in the seat. And I just did it right there in the airplane seat. <laughs> I mean, it's not that much different than any working mom that travels for business. We're just gone, you know, longer in more difficult places. But you know, lots of women now they're bringing their kids along. And, you know, I just got back from, we had a VIP visit to some of our programs way up in the Himalayan mountains and the chief of party, which is the, the project director for a big U.S. government grant that we manage here, uh, has a newborn. She just got back from maternity leave and she flew up to this mountain site with the baby and the nanny and the car seat <gasps> and the whole thing. You didn't tell me that. Oh, yeah. You were telling me how remote and cold it is there, that there's no heating in the hotels. Well, the weather's a little more palatable now this month. I Yeah, I was also there in December when it was beyond miserably cold. But yeah, she went. I mean, you with know. With her baby. Yeah, I mean, it was a VIP visit for her project. And so I split the trip with her to make it a little easier. I did the first half, which was in a different location. And then she met them for the second half. But she had to fly two flights, like a tiny, you know, 12, 15 seater propeller mountain, you know, tiny little plane that goes, you know, into the mountains and her and the baby and the nanny and all the kit. I mean, I saw her at the airport, she's juggling 12 bags, but she did it, you know. And what was so great about it is that the VIP was the USAID mission director here for Nepal, which is like pretty big deal, who is also a woman and has grown kids. And apparently I heard this was just really impressed 
that we enabled her to do that. We support her to do it. You know, we counted the seats in the car. So there was enough space for the car seat and for the nanny. You know, she's breastfeeding and you have to store the milk. I mean, the whole thing. So we have a nursing room at the office. We have a number of moms who are nursing. And, you know, sometimes they bring the baby in. Sometimes they don't. Or they just store the milk. We support it as much as we can. But yeah, it's not easy. And a lot of people used to question me like, how could you do it? And I'm like, well, I don't know. You just do. Like, it makes a big difference when you have a partner that really leans into parenting. Like Steve's been amazing. He's like the most amazing dad. And he just kind of leans into it. He's away right now. And like, I don't know where anything is. It's like reminding me how little, (laughs) like, I don't know how to order school lunches. Like, He's like on this trip and I'm like, honey, can you order school lunch from there? (laughs) Because, you know, we really do have a nice balance and that does make a big difference. And they need that relationship with their father. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think being a very intense working mom is one thing and it's getting less unusual now. It's becoming more mainstream to be a career focused mother. But to add travel to it is a whole nother level as well. Tell me about your job. What do you do in Nepal? I am the country director for the international nonprofit called Mercy Corps, which is one of the biggest global humanitarian and development assistance agencies. I'm sort of like a mini CEO. So I have a portfolio of right now we have about $25 million dollars. And we have multiple donors. We have money from the U.S. government, the U.K. government, some corporate foundations um, like that. And so we have a portfolio of programs, grants that we manage. Finance department reports to me. Human resources department reports to me. Operations, procurement, you know, admin logistics reports to me, as well as I have a director of programs who manages directly the program managers for each of the programs. And so we implement the grants that are either emergency response, humanitarian assistance, or longer-term development programs. And we're like you and anybody else, we're writing proposals for new bids. And we are also, you know, technical experts. So we're doing thought leadership and we're sharing like what works and, you know, the knowledge management and dissemination to other international partners. We, you know, I'm expected to do a lot of that. I do media spots sometimes about our work and we influence policy and a little bit of everything. So all the things. All the things. What's the focus of the grant that you're in charge of right now? So our expertise in Nepal, we have sort of one kind of integrated stream and then another technical area. So we do a lot of work in food security, so which is kind of an integrated sector where we look at the root causes of why people don't have enough food, why they're vulnerable. And that includes components of agriculture and disaster response and like a market systems approach, livelihoods, and also water, providing more water sources. And then we do a lot of work in disaster risk reduction. So helping communities prepare for disasters. The country of Nepal is just hit every year, multiple times a year with micro disasters and really major disasters. So floods, landslides, major storms, of course, earthquakes, you know, everyone knows about the big earthquake from 2015, but we do get a lot of smaller earthquakes. And there is always the preparedness for the next big earthquake, because it is still coming, there is another one at some point soon. And then when there is an emergency, we do frontline emergency response as well. 
And then we have another portion of our portfolio, which is related to sort of youth and inclusion and inclusive education, sort of the factors that enable kids, especially like older kids, we focus more on youth to sort of get educated so that they can have good vocation and be sort of healthy, contributing members of of the community. Do you feel like you're on level 110 every day and you're in charge of all of this? Is like your stress level through the roof at all times in this job? <laughs> no, it's not because I've learned over the years like how to manage stress and how to manage my own wellness. It's a little bit more roller coastery. I'm not at a hundred level a hundred all the time, no. But sometimes, yeah, I mean, sometimes we're really on like COVID, certainly the second wave of COVID here, certainly the Omicron wave was just full on because we're not only taking care of ourselves and our family and our staff and our partners, but we're also doing emergency response, you know, and we're trying to figure out how to pivot our regular programs. And you're in a foreign country. And we're in a foreign country without the same support network. And we're worried about our parents and our family back home. Yeah. So all of it, it's definitely been trying, but, you know, there's also been downtimes where we've been able to get out and go trekking or rafting and really enjoy the country. So I try really hard to slow down when I have a a slower period and, you know, do that. And we all learn how to build a lot of resilience around things like earthquake preparedness and disasters. When we're traveling, we, we know how to like look for if there's a landslide or something like that. So the fact that you know how to be prepared and how to react, it sort of gives you an intellectual calming, I think a little bit more. You arrived in Nepal and how many months later did COVID hit? Yeah, it was about four or five months. And they had you in complete lockdown? Yeah. Actually, my boss was telling me the other day that Nepal had one of the most severe lockdowns in the world, especially the first wave. So in 2020, we had a lot of quite strict lockdown for about three and a half months. Everything. We were sort of working from home. And for a good part of that time, there were police on all the major junctions. Like you could go out for a couple of hours just to your little corner shop. And we were able to sort of take walks or runs in the little lanes kind of in our neighborhood by our house, as long as we didn't go on like a main road. After that was with restrictions, but we had a little bit more flexibility by the fall of 2020. But the kids were in online schooling for a total of, I think, 20 months straight before schools back opened up again. We have a great parenting therapist that we worked with quite a bit. I think I still have a lot of scars and baggage from that. But now, you know, the COVID numbers here in Nepal are really low. We're settling back in, you know, knowing that there, you know, there could always be another wave, but things have turned around quite a bit finally. During COVID, I got to see you be a speaker on CNN yeah, and other major news outlets. Was that your first time on major news outlets? Yeah, that was my first time being interviewed like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. What did you do to prepare for going on camera? And were you in this room? Were the interviews from this room? Yeah, right where I'm sitting. Yeah. (laughs) I did not do very much to prepare because I had very little notice. The CNN interview was live and we had been contacted by CNN. So my, you know, our headquarters team has contacts with all these guys and they had been doing pitch notes about the second wave. And when the Delta variant started hitting India, 
so badly, we knew it would come over the border to Nepal. It was only a matter of time. And so the team at headquarters was starting to do pitch notes, got a bunch of hits. And so we had just had inquiries via email for some more information. So I had emailed the CNN reporter a couple of times and sent her just like background information. I had given an interview to The Guardian for a print article and things like that. But I woke up one morning and there was just an email that said, CNN wants to interview you in three hours. Like we prepared some talking points for you and some prep materials for you. Like just write us back and tell us you can do it. And then within an hour, CNN, the producer had me doing like a sound check and a video check and then talked me through how it was going to work. And then, yeah, like two hours later, like they did the interview live. Now let's talk tech for a little bit. I remember Baltimore City has these private neighborhood pools that you can join. Our kids would be running around and we would just be hanging out in the pool. And there's all these extremely interesting people like Christy. We had another neighbor who was like a, had already built and sold a company in environmental stuff. I don't know. And our other friends, a dentist and now a dental professor. And we're just ladies chatting in the pool with our kids running around. It's a very professional group of women too. Like there's not like, this is not like the housewives of Baltimore kind of scene. It's very like everybody (laughs) is like dual income, like professional. Yeah, for sure. I remember what was so incredible is you and I were both working on KPIs. We were both nerding out because at the time, even though you're in humanitarian aid and I'm working in the intelligence community, we were both based on collecting the data to provide data-driven answers and to understand measures of value. I loved it. So it was like, how do you collect the data? How do you ensure the data is coming in at the right phase? How do you visualize the data and represent the data so that people can make informed decisions from it? (laughs) And you were even building a tool. We were also both doing software design. So I, of course, have no background in software or technology. But when I joined Mercy Corps, I inherited a team that was doing an in-house software build for monitoring and evaluation like measurement software. And I was a subject matter expert on the practice, but I had never led a software team. And so I, in like an instant, had to learn about agile software development and sprints and the whole thing. I had to do like a crash course on it. And I remember talking to you and the software build was not going well. And so part of my job was to like turn it around and clean it up. And I had never managed software developers before. It was very interesting. And I learned a ton and we did turn the the tech around and it's still going great now. You were essentially the project manager and the chief product officer for that product all at the same time. I had all those people under me, but I was also doing all of that. Yeah, I was... Product owner maybe is the closest, but yeah. yeah. In fact, I listened to your Shana Soapbox on agile development and I was so proud of myself. I actually like knew what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you said that there's some really technical things going on right now in Nepal or in your line of work. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about that? One of the things that's so exciting about what we've been doing here in Nepal is transforming the way we use digital cash. And so you'll hear in interviews and stuff about the Ukraine response is a big topic too. 
that today's humanitarian assistance, we just don't give stuff out anymore. I mean, it's really, there's so many reasons you don't give blankets and you don't give clothes and you don't give food anymore. It's really, there's only very rare occasions because it undercuts the local market and people need the dignity to decide what their family needs. And like, you can't know the size of their family and the ages of their children and the size of their clothes and, you know, all that stuff. And so cash-based emergency response is so much more efficient. There's low overhead. It's more traceable. There's less, you know, chance for fraud and corruption. We can do it all digitally now. And then it gives people the ability to decide what they need in their own recovery efforts or, or if they're refugees, what they need. And then they can support the local economy. You're not bringing in like big stuff from warehouses from other places, which costs a lot logistically. So what's really interesting about what's been happening the last couple of years, both with COVID emergency response and with some of the flooding that's been happening here, is that a lot of humanitarian agencies, and you know, I like to think Mercy Corps has been really one of the drivers in this discussion, is, is moving people from handouts to cash-based response. And we've completely skipped over, you know, like money in the envelopes and done it all digitally. What's super exciting is that in the last, I would say, year and a half, we've watched the technology that we've been working with private sector partners, how they have started to evolve the technology and the platform so that we can trace where the cash goes and what people use to spend it on and get it to them faster. Even in incredibly remote parts of the upper Himalayas where you would not think that you could do this kind of work. And it's just been so exciting. I just got back from a trip with some donors this week, in fact, and we were talking to people who had been using this technology and the donors were like, I cannot believe you're doing this like way up here in these remote mountain communities. What's the technology? Is it Zelle, Venmo, PayPal? What are we talking about? <laughs> it's it's homegrown Nepali. We're not using an international platform. It's Nepali developers. So the first iteration of it, we worked with a bank and they're using their own mobile money. And the beneficiaries don't have to have a bank account because sometimes we deal with beneficiaries that are like high vulnerability scale. They're not part of a financial inclusion system. They don't have a bank account. They might not even have enough KYC details or nationality identification or anything to be eligible for a bank account, but they still need emergency assistance. And so the bank figured out how to do prepaid kind of like digital ATM cards. And then small vendors, like even small mountain vendors, they distributed point of service machines. And, and so we would work on who was eligible for it and then distribute the cards, and then they could go to their local market and use the card with a point of service machine. Now, the companies, we're working with a different company because we did, you know, we continue to do tenders. We want to get the private sector market really like thinking in this way. But now we're working on a new initiative with a different company, and they're doing it with QR code based. So the, the cards that they hand out have a QR code in the back, and that's like individually registered to that household. And usually the vendor shop owners have a smartphone. Not all of the beneficiaries have smartphones, but they'll have some kind of a phone. And the QR code can be individually traced to the beneficiary. The vendor scans the QR code and then the beneficiaries can shop for whatever they need. And that includes, you know, if they need rice, lentils, cooking oil, medicines, school supplies for their kids, whatever they really need at the time after the emergency puts them in a, in a difficult situation. So... We even had a community recently where there was no like shop nearby. The closest shop for them to get to the market is a three-hour walk. And so the vendor, the software developer created like an online menu. It's kind of like a 
Nepali version of Amazon, like really localized where they put pictures of all the different items, like the most commonly used item. And then the social mobilizer can go out to the community. And I'm trying, what I'm trying to do now is get the vendor because I want to support a market systems approach and not be dependent on our program, social mobilizers, but they can show the beneficiaries, the pictures in the app, and then they can put in their order. And then the vendor will send out the stuff to the community we're just creating this whole like market supply chain in really remote areas. And we're doing it around like immediate emergency response if they've been affected by a flood and they've lost all their household items or, or what have you. But we're starting to see that we're also building market systems and creating more sustainable entry into like financial inclusion and like digital technology. I mean, it's incredibly exciting. Are there cellular towers everywhere? So everyone's relying on cellular for most of their communication systems? Cell coverage is shockingly widespread here, even in the mountains. It is not 100% in all of the mountain communities, but it's pretty close. And so the apps, they've developed them online, offline. So even if you're in an area where they don't have it, they can still, like, you can still put in your order and fill it out. And then when they get to a mobile connection, like, it uploads and syncs. I think what's interesting that I didn't realize, too, is this fundamental paradigm shift that's happening from literally giving things to sharing money and sharing information and supporting that local environment. And that's a huge change from the world that we grew up in, right, where it was handing out things and giving food or giving money versus the fundamental things that they can get their own resources. So it's not even providing resources it's providing the lifeblood they need to procure their own resources and helping them create structures that allow them to access their own resources. I know a lot of your listeners are in the tech industry, and so they're probably familiar with the podcast Masters of Scale, which is the, the guy from LinkedIn. And so he interviewed the Mercy Corps CEO, Jada McKenna, and she does a really nice explanation of the description of the evolution of humanitarian assistance and what we used to think about box up your old coats and send it, you know, that kind of thing to like how highly professionalized it is right now. And the best thing that you can do if you want to support emergency response is send cash because it is the most cost effective. It's the most efficient. It's the lowest overhead. We can trace it the best. And it gives people dignity um, and it supports the local economy. I mean, you think about a place like Romania, Poland, they're getting millions of refugees and they're having to support them. The last thing you want to do is bring in stuff from the U.S. to undermine the local market. Like the only benefit these people have for their great kindness to host all these people is that the money that we're providing them is being invested back into that economy in Romania, in Poland, in neighboring countries, and soon back into the Ukraine. As a small business owner, the U.S. government is so supportive of small business and the growth of small business and encouraging small business because, as they say, business is the heart of the economy and small business is heart of the community. And so the U.S. makes investments in its own businesses all the time. They're very like, rah, rah, you should start a business. That's what the U.S. government. And so now the humanitarian aid is not only supporting the people directly, but really supporting the small business and these like micro loans. Yeah, it's a market systems approach, even as we're doing humanitarian aid. Yeah, absolutely. What an interesting paradigm shift. Well, you know, you and I could talk forever. (laughs) And for those of you listening, Christy has... Actually, she might have inspired Shana's soapbox or really pushed me across the line to actually do it. 
we use WhatsApp to communicate and she has gotten me into doing voice memos. <laughs> which, which is really your own soapbox that you're just telling to me, like while I'm sleeping and you're awake because our time zones, you know, don't sync that well. I typically leave her a voice memo while I'm driving to meet our close mutual friend, Eve. As I'm driving to Eve, I give Christy a voice memo about what's going on in my life. And it is so awkward at first, but <laughs> it's way faster than typing a letter out. I can't get Eve to, to do it too much. She's like, it's so awkward. I just don't babble on the way you and Shana do about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I have three questions for you before we wrap it up for the day. Number one, what advice would you give your younger self? I hate to say this. I really hate to say this, but I think I would tell my younger self to slow down, take a breath and choose my words more carefully. I'm very passionate about my work. I geek out even technically really easily. I just get very excited. I have a lot of energy and I'm a very extroverted thinker. So ideas just jump into my head and I jump in. But I think I spent a lot of years interrupting people, overshadowing people, kind of like typical masculine traits it took me a long time to learn how to like hold back and slow down. And I'm still not perfect at it. I got a lot and still continue to get the feedback, tone it down, lady, you know, like, I'm, you know, I got to tone it down. I'm, I'm very assertive. I don't worry about toning it down much now because I feel more confident in my social capital of like what I have to say that if I'm not going to tone it down, it's because I feel strongly about it and I want to push the issue, but it's more of an intentional decision. I think when I was younger, I was so sort of raw in what I wanted to do and what I thought and where I thought need, things needed to go that, you know, I stepped on people's toes sometimes. And I think I may have in the eyes of some of my supervisors looked unpolished. And I had a supervisor, a woman supervisor actually told me once, not seasoned enough. And it wasn't until I was much older that I understood what she meant. She said to me, oh, I know you can really do it, but I just don't think you're seasoned enough for it. And I didn't get what she meant. But that's one piece of advice that I would probably tell myself. The seasoned enough, I think, is a particularly woman-focused yeah. and gendered feedback because women are supposed to be in general professionally, and thank God we're breaking through this, but the perception is a professional woman is supposed to be pretty docile and pretty in a box. And so people who are innovative and breaking up norms and comfortable speaking out is uncomfortable for a lot of people. And it's especially uncomfortable coming from a woman. I agree with that. And I never would give myself advice now or my younger self to change what it is I want to say. I would never have told myself to back down or to not say it. It's simply to say it maybe more carefully. Sometimes, yeah, there are a number of people who have given me that advice and I don't know that it was fair feedback. But I do think that I may not have made space for other people sometimes. I'm a driver. Yes. I am a driver and I, I have a vision. I have a plan. I see it right away in a group setting. I'm like, oh, I know where we need to go with this. Like it jumps out at me fast and then I just go. And I don't always like bring other people along with me or worse, I don't give them the space to help shape and craft what we need to do. I got two pieces of advice that stuck with me about that. One was 
you talk too much in meetings. (laughs) (laughs) Half the time, like this isn't even your meeting. (laughs) I always get that. And number two is just because you know the answer doesn't mean you need to speak it up in a meeting. You might know and you might be like, oh, my God, I know the answer. I'm thinking of Monica on Friends where she was always (laughs) the first in class. I think that's good advice. And it's not a tone it down. It's just learn when it's your turn to speak. Yeah. And give the space for other people. What's even more important in a multicultural setting. So I would say now that I'm working in South Asia, but that's not just relevant to someone working in South Asia because we are all now working in much more diverse environments. So it's really applicable to everyone is getting comfortable with the pregnant pause. I call it like, I can't stand silence in a meeting where you ask a question and like nobody responds at first. And I, can always come up with something to say. And I feel incredibly uncomfortable with that, like that pregnant pause. But what I've learned is that like, I need to just sit with it, just lean into the silence for an extra minute or two. And inevitably someone who's less assertive will come forward and start and and give their opinion if I hold back. But if I don't hold back, and I jump in, that other person may never speak up because I'll have taken the conversation a certain direction. So I'm learning to get more comfortable with that, like meeting silence. You can see my face, like if I'm on a Zoom call (laughs) and you can see me, I'm just like, oh, I hate this. It's so uncomfortable. Nobody's speaking right now, you know, like I just, but I'm learning. I have these little fidget toys and I'm learning to just like own that. And it usually always pays off. What book has really impacted you personally or professionally? One book that has stayed with me over the years is The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. My college roommate, Rebecca, was very into literature and poetry and introduced me to this book. And it is a fable, but it is just an amazing fable. And of course, by a very famous writer. I loved it so much that we had someone read an excerpt from it at our wedding, which was about kind of seeing the forest through the trees and taking the time to like using different perspectives to sort of see different things in life. And in fact, for my wedding, my husband gave me like a first edition, like a beautiful version of it. That was like really sweet. Yeah. For the final question, tell me something about yourself that might surprise others. One is I like to color. So I do a lot of these adult coloring books. So even on my desk right now is a half finished one. And on my wall, I have colored pencils. It's if I need to focus, uh, especially with all these Zoom calls. But I have been known even in like these regional meetings where these workshops to like bring colored pencils and color. And I have all these ones. But one of my coloring books is sassy off color, like swear words. It's like really like (laughs) it's really dirty. I'm not particularly like a rule breaker. I'm kind of a rule follower. So I think it is sort of just fun for me to feel like, oh my God, I'm coloring a swear word in the middle of like a really important, serious meeting. And maybe another thing is that I have my sailing license, my sailing certificate. So the reason my parents never traveled, why I never went anywhere is because my parents were avid sailors. Like I grew up on a sailboat every weekend, every summer, all our vacations was as a sailboat. I had my junior license, you know, when I was a kid always was on the sailboat and then didn't have a lot of opportunity when, you know, I grew up. And so then after we moved to Baltimore, I finally like went back to the downtown sailing center and got and refreshed, like took a a whole weekend course. 
I got my sailing license renewed. And then of course that was the summer before we decided to move to Nepal. So now I'm in like a landlocked country again, but I absolutely love sailing. It is kind of where my happy place is to be on a sailboat on the water. And I don't always have enough opportunity to do it. Well, I would like to be a passenger. Christy, I could talk to you forever. I love you. And thank you so much for sharing your Friday evening with me. And thank you for including me. I feel really honored. I'm really excited for this opportunity and keep doing more Shana soapboxes because I think they're really fun. And I also love the podcast. I'm an avid listener. And oh, one last story. I have to tell you this story before I go. I don't know if you know this, but I often have to take these mountain flights to get way up into the Himalayas, into these little villages we go. And there is usually between 12 and 20 minutes of like soil your pants, scary, where like the mountain air currents like push this little 12 seater propeller plane around and it scares the crap out of me because I'm a little bit afraid of heights. And I put your podcast in my ears every time it's my like little tradition routine and my good luck charm. So I always have your voice in my ears while I'm scared to death. Like, please don't let this plane go down. Please let us land. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again, and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.